Hi, everybody. We've reached the end of the book of Exodus. And the last portion is called Kudai. So let's say a blessing for studying Torah. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher kitshanu v'mitzvotav. Vitzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. Amen. Um, I'm, it's been very busy here, so I'm flying a bit by the seat of my pants, but I have a lovely teaching uh, that I, that uh, one of my, again, one of my favorite teachings from Pekude, um that I will share with you, and then perhaps some other tidbits from this Torah portion. Context is, this is chapter, we start in the middle of chapter 38, and then chapter 39 and chapter 40. And that brings us to the end of the book of Exodus, which as I get to every year, is actually a very stirring ending that began because the book of Exodus, as I've taught, has a beautiful dramatic arc. And it's not, as opposed to say the Leviticus or Numbers of Deuteronomy, where the narrative is not as, as the narrative of the action is not as clear necessarily from the beginning to the end of the book. Exodus begins with God being distant from the children of Israel who cry out from their, from their bondage and ends with the completion of the Mishkan and the divine presence dwelling with them on all their journeys. And so it's a beautiful narrative arc of um, from a, from um, abandonment to connection. And that the whole book has that quality. And as I've also taught, the, the book of Genesis and Exodus together also have a beautiful narrative arc uh, from the beginning when God creates the world to the end when humans finally create a place for God in their midst. And again, there's a beautiful wholeness to that, which is reflected in the language of this portion, which we won't explore in depth today, but is just beautiful. All the language of creation and God blessed and God made and God completed is all reflected in the end of the coup day. Moses makes the tabernacle and it is completed and Moses blesses and there you can feel the completion of uh, God's wish for humanity, that we would be able to create in our own societies the kind of wholeness and fullness that God creates in the universe. Uh, so it's quite beautiful. But I wanna focus on a teaching that I love from the very beginning of the portion. And so I'm gonna share my screen and show you the verse from the beginning. Ele Fukudei Hamishkan. These are the records of the Mishkan, Fukudei accountings, because Lifkod uh, is to take note of, to count, 
to account. So in this case, pakude means the accounting, the actual records, the ledgers of the Mishkan. Mishkan Ha'idut, the tabernacle of the pact. Um, I we need a better, Eidut are the tablets of witnessing, the tablets of the community. The, in other words, the Mishkan holds the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments on them. That's what the tabernacle of the pact means. Asher Pukad, which were drawn up at Moses' bidding. Okay, so what's happened is in the previous chapters, all the appurtenances, all the vessels, all the cloak coverings, all the hooks and the beams and everything has been made by Betzalel, Oholiav, and all the wise craftspeople of Israel, women, men and women. That's what was the last week's portion. And now the narrative pauses and it says Moses drew up the accountings of this construction. And this was done, Moses didn't draw it up, Alpimosha, Moses in ordered that it be drawn up, but the work of accounting was done by the Levites under the, in, under the leadership of Itamar, Aaron's son. Um, so now let me stop sharing for a minute. Oh no, I'll go on and just give you the sense of things. Now here are the accountings. Now Betzalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah had made all that Yodhevavhe had commanded Moshe. And at his side was Aholiab, son of Achitamach of the tribe of Don, carver and designer and embroiderer in purple, blue and crimson yarns and fine linen. All the gold was used for that work in all the work of the sanctuary. The elevation offering of gold came to 29 talents and 730 shekels by the sanctuary weight. The silver of those of the community who were accorded came to 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the sanctuary weight. A half shekel per person, half a shekel by the sanctuary weight for each one who was entered into the record from the ages of 20 years up, 603,550 men. And the hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets for the curtain. A hundred sockets to the hundred talent, a talent for a socket. And the hundred, 1,075 shekels made the hooks for the posts and the overlay for the top and the bands around them. And the copper from the elevation offering came to 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. I'm hurrying here because we don't need to worry about this other than hear it. Of it, he made the sockets for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the copper altar and its copper grating and all the utensils of the altar, the sockets of the enclosure round about and the sockets of the gate of the enclosure and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the enclosure, etc. The end, I mean, end of chapter 39 because uh, that's the accounting. Okay. So you might ask, why do we need to hear these numbers, right? What is this doing here? What has this got to do with holiness? 
And as you know, we study Torah, as have all our ancestors, with the assumption that there's a purpose to each passage. And that it's our humble job to try to figure out what that purpose is, a teaching purpose, a moral purpose. And as it happens, the, the central teaching about this is beautiful. Um, and I turn to Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory uh, for his beautiful summary of the teachings around this. Why does Moses take the time? Oh, does talent, no talent is a quantity. Um, uh, what is it in Hebrew? Let me see. Uh, sorry, just a moment. Um, is it kivar? Kikar, kikar. No. The Hebrew word kikar. Uh, I would say kikar, which mean, is like a square, probably means a weight, a certain weight, much larger than a shekel, which is a much smaller weight. Um, you know, it, I've heard that word, what, in pirate stories, probably. Uh, it's an old word for us, an amount of weight. I wonder why it's called a talent um, in English. That's interesting. Um, okay, so um, the understanding, so the question is, why did Moses instruct a... Um, What's the, what's the word when you instruct someone to do an accounting, us, uh, uh, an independent, um, he doesn't do it, Itamar does it, an auditor. Uh, that's right, thank you. Moses assigns an auditor to uh, account for every donation of gold, silver, and copper that has been donated. And the answer is, is pretty straightforward from the from essentially the thread of com of traditional commentaries on this Moses insisted on being accountable as a leader Moses was the most humble as it says over and over again of leaders he um, and he knew that transparency where the money went was crucial for the community to continue to trust its leadership. Uh, Rabbi Ellen put the origin of talent, first recorded before 900 Middle English, from balance, weight, or monetary unit, from the Greek talentum to the Latin talenta. How interesting. So now we wanna find out, we don't find out now, how talent became something that a person has that is an attribute, an, an asset, a special talent. Fascinating. Um, let's see. Somebody isn't muted. Uh, oh, there we go. I'm going to mute you, Abigail. There you go. Um, okay. So, typically, as is typical, the... Um, the traditional commentaries, going back to the ancient Midrash, explain this with, with, with little stories, right? 
there's this verse in the golden calf episode when after the children of Israel sinned with the golden calf, God insisted that the tent of meeting be moved out of their midst and away from the camp. Symbolically, God's presence, they were separated from God's presence. And there's this very poignant line that says, and the people would sit in the entrance of their tents and watch Moses walk out to the tent of meeting. It's a very poignant line. Uh, but what the Midrash does with it, they, is it says they gazed after Moses. And the Midrash says, when they were looking after Moses, they were criticizing Moses. And they used to say to one another, look at his bulging neck. Look at those calves like melons. Moses is eating and drinking what belongs to us. And everything he has belongs to us. The other would reply, well, a man who's in charge of all the work of the sanctuary, what do you expect? That he shouldn't get rich? As soon as he heard this, Moses replied and says, oh, by your life, as soon as the sanctuary is complete, I will make a full reckoning for you. So as usual, the Midrash reflects human nature and what always, you know, always is and will be, which is that most everyone expects leaders to enrich themselves. That's just a default expectation. And it's one of the reasons why We can't build just societies because it's just the expectation. But the Torah has much higher expectations, right? Over and over, whenever the instruction is given to Moses to appoint judges and magistrates, it's always with the understanding that, um, uh, uh, like in um, when Jethro comes to him before and says, you can't, be the, you can't be the only one who adjudicates here. You have to assign judges and uh, or you have to assign appellate judges and local judges and town judges so that we can, this is the only, only way it's going to work. But you have to assign men who revere God, trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain. A society in its entirety truly is, can only function when it's built on trust. And the integrity of leaders is critical for their followers to be able to trust them, right? There's just no other way to do it. And so the Torah says over and over in, um, in Parshat Shoftim in Deuteronomy, it says, uh, you shall appoint magistrates and officials and you shall not judge unfairly. You shall not take bribes, for bribes blind the eyes of the discerning and upset the plea of the just. Justice, justice shall you pursue. It's again, one of the most central thrusts of the Torah. And Moses epitomizes that, and that's how the commentaries See, the commentary, the Midrashim aren't pulled out of thin air. They're woven from the context 
of what the larger Torah consistently demands of us. And Moses is our exemplar in that regard. In the um, story of Korach in Numbers, so you remember Korach. Now, let me read you the beginning. Korach and his cohort took themselves and rose up against Moses. And they combined against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all the community are holy and the eternal is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourself above the eternal's congregation? And Moses's response is, among other things, Moses was much aggrieved and said to the eternal, pay no regard to their claims. I have not taken the donkey of any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. That's his first response. Right? The same thing happens in the book of Samuel. When Samuel, who is the leader um, uh, of the tribes in Israel, says, um, found this line um as for me i have grown old and gray and i have been your leader from my youth to this day here i am he naming testify against me in the presence of god have i taken anyone's ox or anyone's donkey have i defrauded anyone or have i robbed anyone from whom have i taken a bribe to look the other way if so, I will return it to you. And the people responded, you have not defrauded us and you have not robbed us and you have taken nothing from anyone. It, so again, this is the leader speaking up for their integrity, Moses and then Samuel. And it's a really important and central aspect of, um, of um, what makes a leader trustworthy. And so I just, I really appreciate this teaching. So Rabbi Sachs, whom I printed out here, here, let me put him up on the screen. We can all read it together. Mm, just a moment. Don't need that. There we go. but I do need to change the window. Okay, hold on. Moving things around. There we go. Okay. I'm, re I'm just quoting Rabbi Sex. Accusations of corruption and personal enrichment have often been leveled against leaders with or without justification. We might think that since God sees all we do, this is enough to safeguard against wrongdoing. Yet Judaism does not say this. The Talmud records a scene at the deathbed of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai as the master lay surrounded by his disciples. Okay, Yochanan ben Zakkai, first century, leader 
of the rabbinic movement. And as he was dying, they said to him, our master, bless us. And he said to them, may it be God's will that the fear of heaven shall be as much upon you as the fear of flesh and blood. And fear, use the word fear here, concern. You're worried about what God thinks about you and you're worried about flesh and blood. His disciples asked, and I love that, is that it? <laughs> I, 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 that may be supposed to be funny. Wait, that's your blessing for us? And he replied, would that you obtain no less than such fear. You conceive for yourselves the truth of what I say. Sin, he says, I hope nobody sees me. So when humans commit a sin, they worry that other people might see them. They forget that God certainly sees them. Temptation befuddles the brain, and no one should believe they are immune to it. Um, a later passage in Tanakh seems to indicate that Moses' account was not strictly necessary, because in the book of Kings, there's an episode in which during the reign of King Jehoash, money was raised for the restoration of the temple, where it says they did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. So there's another passage later in the book of Kings where they don't require an accounting because they completely trust the people who were doing the building. Uh, Moses, a man of complete honesty, may thus have acted beyond the strict requirement of the law. Okay, now this phrase is a really important phrase in Jewish law which is lifnim shurat hadin, beyond the strict requirement of the law, to go above and beyond. Because I guess the law was, they didn't have to, um, uh, they didn't have to uh, make an accounting. That wasn't their requirement by law, based on what happens in the book of Kings. And yet Moses acts beyond the strict requirement of the law. We are frequently asked to do this in Judaism as the beneficial thing. Yes, you can do just, what, just what's required of you, but to guarantee trust and integrity, you need to do more. And that's beyond the strict requirement of the law, which is one of the principles of halakha, Jewish law. So let me skip this next part. And then in the Mishnah, here's how ethics lead, laws lag behind them, says Rob. Thank you, Rob. Here's a beautiful uh, way that the, 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 the rabbinic literature elucidates this. When the people came to take coins for sacrifices from the shekel chamber in the temple where the money was kept, Da, da, da. Okay, context. When the temple stood in Jerusalem, the treasury was also in the temple. Um, and people would come to the treasury chamber in order to exchange funds so that they could 
uh, pay with the, with the temple weight of coin. But also, um, here, let me read this. Those who entered the chamber wearing either a bordered cloak or shoes or sandals or tefillin or an amulet, lest if he became poor people, hold on, I'm trying to understand this. Lest if he became poor people, might say that he became poor because of an iniquity committed in the chamber. Or if he became rich, people might say he became rich from the appropriation in the chamber. Okay, so there's a lot of money in the chamber and no one could go into it with anything pockets or anything in which they could hide coins. For it is a person's duty to be free of blame before men as before God, as it is said, and be clear before the Lord and before Israel. So shall thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Okay, so in this previous lengthy passage, um, there's a phrase in Numbers that the tribes of Reuben and God had to keep their word, as Moses says, so they would be then be clear, Nikiim, before God and before Israel. This phrase entered Jewish law as the principle, one must acquit oneself before one's fellow human beings as well as before God. It is not enough to do right, says Rabbi Sachs. We must be seen to do right, especially when there is room for rumor and suspicion. So it becomes a principle in Jewish law that even the appearance of impropriety is not okay. And uh, for instance, he then gives a bunch of really interesting examples. When tzedakah overseers had funds left over, they were not permitted to change copper for silver coins of their own money. They had to make the exchange with a third party. This is Jewish law. Overseers in charge of a soup kitchen were not allowed to purchase surplus food when there were no poor people with whom, to whom to distribute it in case they were just using the surplus to feed themselves. The surpluses had to be sold to others so as to not to arouse suspicion that the charity overseers were profiting from the public funds. The Shulchan Aruch, which is the main book of Jewish law practice from the 1500s, rules that charity collection must always be done by a minimum of two individuals so that each can see what the other is doing. Interestingly, there's a different opinion between Rav Yosef Karo and Rav Moshe Iselis, the two authorities who, about the shulch of this code, law of code, on the need to provide details account, detailed accounts. Rav Yosef Karo rules on the basis of the passage in Two Kings, they did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. So Caro thought that no formal accounting is required from people of unimpeachable honesty. Rabbi Moshe Israelis, however, says that it is right to do so because of the principle that you need to be clean and clear, not only before God, but before the people, your fellow people. Trust is of the essence in public life.
I like what Rabbi Sachs says. A nation that suspects its leaders of corruption cannot function effectively as a free, just, and open society. It is a mark of a good society that public leadership is seen as a form of service rather than a means to power, which is all too easily abused. Tanakh is a sustained tutorial in the importance of high standards in public life. The prophets were the first world's first social critics, mandated by God to speak truth to power and to challenge corrupt leaders. Elijah's challenge to King Ahab and the protests of Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah against the unethical practices of their day are classic texts in this tradition, establishing for all time the ideals of equity, justice, honesty, and integrity. A free society is built on moral foundations and those must be unshakable. Moses' personal example in giving an accounting of the funds that had been collected for the first collective project of the Jewish people set a vital precedent for all time. I thought that was a fine teaching. <sighs> I was reflecting on the uh, Korach, which we'll get to later in the year, which is in the book of Numbers, who says to Moses, you've raised yourself up too high against all of us. And the, um, the commentaries point out that Korach was a very wealthy man. And uh, um, what his priorities were is suspect. Uh, whereas Moses, it says over and over, was the most humble and a servant of God and the people who had no personal investment in, in personal gain. So all of that draws from that one little quest, that one question that you would ask when you reach this passage. Um, I'll get Barbara's question in a moment which is why are they telling us how exactly how much was spent on the construction of the Mishkan? Don't you trust Moses? And the answer is, no, we don't trust our leaders and we shouldn't. They should all be transparent and accountable for every penny they spend or else a society cannot be built on trust. And if there's anything that the Torah is trying to accomplish, again, in contrasting the laws given at Mount Sinai with the people's previous existence in under slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt, is that if we do not build a society based on trust, uh, a standard of justice and accountability for all, then, the most powerful, ambitious, conniving, ruthless person will inevitably rise to the top. And it's only in the collective enforcement of these principles of, of, of a society in which uh, it, that's based on trustworthiness, is there any hope of curbing the, um, the lust for power that uh, characterizes human experience 
So there's a, there's a battle that goes on. Barbara wrote, these passages are about acting with integrity. We should act this way. But what if someone acts with a lack of integrity towards us? Great question, Barbara. Um, I don't see though why it's a problem. Um, uh, because we are not, our, we're, we wanna look at ourselves in the mirror every day and say, my hands are clean. This is like about the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov. Um, if we allow ourselves to be driven by our own uh, grudges, um, um, uh, lusts for power, desire to win, all the things that mm, I have, <laughs> I got all that stuff. If I run my life based on that, then I'm not playing the Torah game. I'm not playing, I'm not doing, I'm not listening to my higher teaching. And so the spiritual challenge of being a good human being presents itself to us every single day, every single encounter, every moment. Um, and, uh, Forgive me my trespasses, forgive me my failings, because I do not live up to that um, higher ideal much of the time, but I'm working on it. And that's sort of where it's at. Marcia says, isn't this also about no one not being higher, better than others or less than others? I think so. It seems such a challenge for people to not feel that they're better than or less than. Equality seems to be such a challenge to achieve in society. Indeed, yes. One of the teachings about why it says justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. Why does it say pursue? Why does it say do, establish? Uh, and the answer is because we're always in pursuit of it. And rarely do we attain it, but we must continue to pursue it. And as I've taught before, there's only one other mitzvah that involves pursuit. Everywhere else it says, do it. And that it says, seek peace and pursue it. And the, our commentators point out that those are the only two commandments that involve this active pursuit rather than some kind of more established, do this. I love that because when we say a world of peace and justice, it's a pursuit. <laughs> it's, it's not a fait accompli ever because of human nature. Um, aspirational, good word. Yes. The Torah is aspirational um, and asks us to see if we can do that. I'm sorry, Barbara, you raised your hand. Would you like to unmute yourself? Or shall I just read your question? Right. Barbara said, go ahead, Barbara. You, you can read it, it's fine. Is there a time when it's appropriate to hold someone accountable for transgressions toward us? Yes, all the time. Absolutely. Holding accountable 
is different than, um, I read that differently than what you said before. What if someone acts with a lack of integrity towards us? Yes, we must hold them accountable. accountable. It doesn't mean we seek revenge. It doesn't mean we demean them. It doesn't mean any of those. But uh, absolutely, it's our responsible uh, responsibility to hold others accountable. That is at the heart of the Parsha Kadoshim in the verses prior to love your neighbor as yourself. When it says, do not stand idly by when, some, when your neighbor's blood is being shed. Um, you know, we're not supposed to tolerate injustice. Uh, we need to find a way to encounter, to, uh, to encounter it and to um, hold the people accountable. There's time to, for punishment. There's, this is what teshuva is all about. It's like, we need to, we need to take seriously that the, our actions um, have um, um, uh, uh, consequences. And then we need to see, we need to be accountable for all of our actions. And so does everybody else. Um, how we do that is, you could say, the as my um, uh, as my beloved teacher Rabbi Ira Eisenstein liked to say, Judaism is a three thousand year long discussion of ethics. That's to be Jewish means to really be preoccupied with what it means to do the right thing. Beautiful, isn't it? And those commentaries continue to this moment, not just to this day. We are doing what the Torah, we are doing what Jews have done, which is engage in the detailed discussion. So for instance, for Barbara, it would be spending the rest of our time talking about, so what, which situation are you talking about? And what could we do? What could a person do in order to uh, 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 be accountable and hold others accountable? And I'll repeat something I've repeated many times, which is that all ethics are situational. In other words, you can have a rule but then every situation requires you to figure out how to effectively apply that rule. And that requires um, thoughtfulness, conscience, uh, taking into account many different variables, being willing to wait, uh, all kinds of things. We wish it was easy to just be fair and do the right thing. That's, kids want, that's what kids demand. You know, kids say, that's not fair. Right? We know it's not fair. And how are we going to enact fairness? Right? So every situation requires a different response based on the principles that we're laying out here today. So where Moses, in this particular instance, understands that a leader is going to be suspect. Right? He doesn't have to give an accounting. He's honest. He knows he's honest. But he also knows that in his situation, 
as leader, he has learned that every leader is going to be suspect because most of them are suspicious. And so he decides to go the extra step in that situation of releasing completely transparent books that anyone can look at in order to maintain public trust. He doesn't have to do it, but he knows it's the right thing to do. And so you could, it, I could describe what Moses did as a, a good example of situational ethics. What do people expect from leaders? What are their biases? What are their, what are their, you know, and how can I, to the best of my ability, maintain trust in my leadership, maintain their trust? And if they maintain trust in my leadership, then they can maintain trust in the society as a whole that we're trying to create. Um, so that's, that's what I wanted to share about that. Um, anyone else want to say anything along these lines? And then I'll turn to one other beautiful, a couple other beautiful teachings from this portion. Um, ah, race, situational ethics, says Joshua. What about when doing the right thing and doing the legal thing are opposed? That is a good question. We should ponder it at all times. rather than me put out some kind of glib answer to that. That is such a good question. And I think it goes to the Jewish, the tr ancient Jewish principle of exceeding the letter of the law. Lifnim shurat hadin means exceeding the letter of the law. When do we do it? And why do we do it? And how should we do it? Thanks, Joshua. And Deborah says, and in holding people accountable, as I was, based on what I was saying, we need a justice system that is also held accountable. Exactly. And Gail has her hand up. Please, Gail, unmute yourself. Um, this isn't anything profound or anything, but I am always so, I'm so impressed by the Torah's understanding that people, that we are who we are, that we're mm -hmm. just flawed. And although there is a path through Torah to overcome a lot of that and get to a place where, where the ego is very subsumed. Um, in the meantime, we need as much help as we can get. And that's what all of the rules are or suggestions for how to behave. That's all. It's so clear-sighted. Clear-sighted, I agree. You know, whereas so many, there are so many other um, avenues that I encounter that just sort of assume, well, if you work a little harder, you know, get to be a saint. And just isn't like that. <laughs> That's all. Well said. Thank you. Joshua has his hand up. Please, Joshua. Yeah, back, back to my question. <clears throat> yes. I'm, I'm wondering, um, because we, all, we really do live in an age where there's a lot of you know, legalism, meaning those who are willing to justify wrong action, uh, through the argument that it's legal action. That's so common. Um, right. Wondering if, um, uh, besides the phrase you shared, if there are any passages in Torah that specifically deal with when there is a tension between what is right and what is written as legal in a society. Oh, how interesting. Um, I can't answer that off the top of my head. I'm sure 
not necessarily in the Torah, but in rabbinic literature, I'm sure that gets addressed, but I have to research and find it. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I don't have, I'm sorry I don't have that one at the tip of my tongue. I'd love to, but thank you. I'm gonna look into that. Great, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. <clears throat> so let me, um, oh, can, I, can you repeat what he said? I'll just let Joshua repeat it, okay? I was, I was referring to, um, boy, it's so common. It's, 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 uh, I've heard it referred to as legalism, but when um, doing wrong is justified uh, by the law or when the law um, is unjust, there's this ethical dilemma. Um, one may have to break the law to do the right thing. Um, and so I was just questioning if there is... Uh, if there are some um, passages in the Torah that uh, can offer some guidance around that issue. That was my right. question. Thank you. Thank you. And then I don't know if there are, if, if I find anything, I bet it might be a story because that's often how, um, how, how those questions get, get explored. And I was saying, Sarah, that I didn't have anything at the tip of my tongue, but that, that is, that's the right question. Yeah. And of course, you know, we, we bump up against this so much in our world today, you know? Yep. It's, uh, it's just crazy. Yep. Ah, right. Thank you, Russ. Yes, we should turn to the Torah of Martin Luther King and read the letter from the Birmingham Jail. Read it as part of our sacred study. I mean it. Read it every year or more often. Thank you. I think that's, uh, I don't know where to turn in Jewish sources off the top of my head, but uh, that's a great place to start. And in fact, a rabbi who just died, Cy Dresner at age 90 something, was King's close friend and colleague. And he and a whole group of rabbis also went down with the Freedom Riders and were arrested. And they penned a letter also that I need to look up because it addresses that question to Joshua. So Cy uh, Dresner um, and the letter, let's, let's search for that too. The letter that the rabbis wrote from jail during the civil rights movement might also address your question directly from a Jewish standpoint. Thanks everybody. It's good to do this, uh, good to do this. Um, and Deborah says, of course, Thoreau in civil disobedience. And our time is not unusual. This has been a question since when? Well, oh, here's the best example, Joshua, the midwives. In Egypt, Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill any Hebrew infant who's a boy. And the midwives refuse. And they come up with a strategy mm -hmm. to subvert the decree. Mm -hmm. So that's our best example. That's our, core, that's our core example of civil disobedience in Torah. That's really good to remember. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is good. Thanks, everybody. Um, there's uh, a... Um, 
a beautiful line I want it. Well, let's, let me think for a second. I have two places I could go. And I think what I want to do is, yeah, I think I want to show you this verse from last week's Torah portion, which I meant to get to and didn't. In last week's Torah portion, I'm going to bring up a verse, chapter 36, verse 13. Let me share my screen and scroll back to that. Not that one. There. And don't get dizzy. So I love this passage and this is last week's portion, but I want to share it with you. Then all the skill among those who engaged in the work made the tabernacle, the tabernacle is Mishkan of the dwelling place for God of 10 strips of cloth, which they made of fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and crimson yards. Into these they worked a design of cherubim. And the length of each cloth was blah, 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 etc. Oh, great. Ellen found the letter. Ellen Weaver, it's called Why We Went, a joint letter from the 17 rabbis arrested in 1964. Let's all look that up after class, okay? Thank you so much, Ellen. Okay. Now, verse 10. Vayechaber, they joined five of the cloths to one another and chibar achat el echat, joining one to another. Anybody recognize that word, chaber? You know what a chaber is, right? A chaber is a friend. A chibur is a composition. Lechaber is to join in carpentry, like a joint. So a chaver is really a comrade. And lechaber is a beautiful word because it means to join together. So they're joining the cloths, they're joining the other cloths, and then they make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth. And the same on their matching sets. 50 loops of one cloth and 50 loops of another. And here's the word, b'machberet. When I was in Jewish day school, the machberet is your notebook, your composition book. That's where it comes from. A chibur is a composition. Machberet's a composition book. Here it's a joining. Machberet, machberet. Machberet. There it is again. Loops to loops and they made 50 gold clasps and chiber coupled the units, one cloth, achat el echat. And the word join you hear over and over again. And then it says, they made the 50 gold clasps and coupled the units to one another with the clasps. Vayehi hamishkan echad. 
that Mishkan became one whole, because the translators don't know how to translate this. The tabernacle became one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which is so beautiful. And the teaching that, it, I, I mean, I've read this teaching, but it also just jumps out. Everybody's making clasps, favim hooks, loops, and joining them one to the other all around. And when everything is clasped together, the Mishkan becomes Yehi Echad. One. And so this becomes a beautiful teaching, which I always want to come back to, that somehow there's two, this goes in two directions. One, not in two directions, two directions that converge. One is this idea of oneness coming out of all these parts, all these detailed, delicate, separate, tiny parts that have to come together. And the other is Rabbi Larry Kushner taught is that every loop and clasp and hook and hinge is crucial to the oneness that we create together. And so the teaching about that, and he wrote an essay long ago, uh, the tent peg people, he says his synagogue only works because of the people who are making the tent pegs and hammering them in the ground, right? There's no magic community that exists without every hook, every clasp, every person who makes a joint between two things. All of us, even the people that we think, oh, they just made the, they, you know, they, that guy cleans the toilets, you know, like, yep, yep, yep. That the oneness of a community is based on every single clasp, every single joiner, every single act that makes, that weaves it into one whole. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? And once again, it connects with the initial teaching that Moses is accounting. Um, oh, yes. And in Sukkot, when we say that the lulav only exists because all four kinds of people, all four are needed to make one whole. Adonai Echad. God's presence, God's oneness is perceived and experienced only out of that sense where we're all part of the same project not just the guy at the top. And that's why Moses needs to be accountable more beyond the letter of the law so that a true holy community can be built. Not just one that's based on rules, but based on an understand this deep understanding. And so I wanted to show you that beautiful line in the previous chapter. Okay, thank you so much again for giving me the opportunity to teach this Torah.